but thank you. Uh, the Bible is filled, we're back to the Bible now, the Bible is filled with some remarkable stories. And, and the Bible refuses to hide the truth from us. God lays it all out there as part of a, a bigger narrative that leads back to the redemptive work of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. For example, we get the full story of David's failure with Bathsheba. We're not spared the foibles of Peter as he stumbles and bumbles his way through three plus years as the Savior's sidekick. Solomon had his rough spots. Samson misses the mark. Elijah had a breakdown. John Mark bailed out when his companions really needed him. Paul had a pretty rough history, of which were given many of the gory details. Still, the gospel is good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. And for us, that means failure does not have to be fatal. What really matters is motive. What is it that drives you? It's part five of our series called Ten Unpreached Sermons. The series was inspired by an article that I read some time ago by Chara Donahue, a freelance writer, who wrote ten stories that are never dealt with in our pulpits because they're too strange, too bizarre, too difficult. Part one in this series was about the earth opening up and swallowing Korah and his 250 rebels. In part two, we talked about Ehud and his assassination of the overweight king Eglon. Part three was Saul and the sorceress of Endor who called up the spirit of Samuel, which I contend was really a demon. And last week we talked about Rizpah, the devoted mother who watched over the bodies of her two dead sons for five months. Our two main characters today are Elisha the prophet and his servant Gehazi. And for some reason this pops into my mind right now. The slide that Jamie had behind her said 18 to 25. It's really 18 to 29. Am I correct? 18 to 29 for the young adult age. Why that pops into my mind at this point, <laughs> I have no idea. Our two main characters today are Elisha the prophet and his servant Gehazi. Matt likes this name, Gehazi. He's going to have one more kid. It's going to be a boy. <laughs> two men, Elisha and Gehazi. Not Elijah, Elisha and Gehazi. Two men, both blessed, both influential. But what was it that motivated them? And what is it that motivates you? These and other probing questions are answered today in part five of our ten unpreached sermons when Gehazi's greed led to leprosy. Motive is what causes a person to act in a certain way or do a certain thing. Motive is incentive. It's the goal or the object of a person's actions. 
Today in 2 Kings chapter 5, and you can turn there if you like to follow along in your Bible, 2 Kings 5, we look at Elisha's motive, and we look at Gehazi's motive, and maybe you will begin to look at what it is that motivates you. The chapter begins, 2 Kings 5, begins with the story of Naaman's healing from leprosy after he obeyed Elisha's instructions. This is a a story that you can read about in, in children's Bible story books, but we usually don't hear the rest of the story there. The children's books don't tell us about how Elisha's servant, Gehazi, tried to get some side action. Elisha had turned down payment from Naaman for being the vessel through whom God's healing power flowed. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, followed Naaman out of town, misrepresented Elisha, and profited financially. Two different men, two different motives. Naaman was a Syrian official, a general in the army during the reign of Ben-Hadad. The Bible refers to to Naaman in verse 1 of that chapter as a mighty man of God. But it also says he was a leper. In his conquests in the Middle East, Naaman had brought back a young Hebrew girl into his home as servant for his wife. That might not be a bad pastor appreciation gift sometime. <laughs> the, young man, the, young man, the young maid told Naaman of Elisha, the man of God, and how God could use him to heal Naaman's leprosy. So Naaman headed to Israel in search of healing. With him he brought a wage for the one who would facilitate a miracle. Verse 5 of 2 Kings 5 says that he brought 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold. I mean, it's easy to read over that and not think much of it. 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment, clothing. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Verse 10 says, Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Eventually, it says in verse 14 that Naaman went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, soft as a baby's behind. And he was clean. Naaman was thrilled, as as you can imagine. Imagine imagine having an incurable disease. You've gone to all the doctors. You've been to all the best hospitals. and, And you've tried all of the alternative healing methods to no avail. Your body is still riddled with leprosy. Your system is still inundated with cancer. Your bones are still deteriorating. Your back still aches. Migraines still plague you. And your blood is still diseased. It's been so bad for so long, even hope 
is a distant memory. But then you encounter someone who provides healing where no one else could. Naaman did what you and I would do. Verse 15 says, He returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. Now therefore, I pray you, take a blessing from me. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Naaman urged him to take it, the Bible says, but Elisha refused. Elisha wasn't in it for the money. He just operated in his calling for the glory of God. You know, as I've prepared this sermon, I realize that that's the key statement, and it's so easy to miss there. Elijah just operated in his calling for the glory of God. Verse 19, Naaman began his journey home. And this is where Gehazi saw his opportunity and his motives become all too clear. Verse 20, it says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and he said, Is everything all right? Verse 22, Gehazi says, All is well. My master has sent me. A blatant lie saying, Behold, even now there may be come unto me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman said, verse 23, Hey, take whatever you need. Take two talents. And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments, laid them upon two of his servants, and they bear them before him. And when Gehazi returned with his ill-gotten booty. Or was it ill-bootengadi? <laughs> he acted as if nothing had happened. Verse 25 says, He went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Where have you been? And Gehazi said, Nowhere. Out. I was out, man. Remember that when you were a teenager? Mom? Where are you going? Out. But where? I'm going out. Verse 26, Elisha said unto him, Went not my heart from thee, with thee, when the man turned down again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money, to receive garments, olive yards, vineyards, sheep, oxen, men servants, and maidservants? The leprosy therefore, Elisha said, of Naaman, shall cleave unto you and your seed forever. And Gehazi went out from his presence a leper, as white as snow. Two men, two motives. So what are some of our possible motives as we do life? What are, what are some of our motives as we make our way 
through life. Number one, the glory of God. I hope this is our motive, right? It certainly seems to be Elisha's motive. He has, he has opportunity to benefit financially, and he just doesn't seem interested. I don't even know if it, if, if, if it seems, if, it, if he thinks it's wrong, he just isn't interested. He seems to have conquered the spirit of greed, and he simply operates in harmony with the will of God. Colossians 3, verse 17 says, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by Him, by Jesus. I mean, what a great place to be. Pure, unadulterated, undefiled, honest, uncluttered, simple, faith-driven, faith-sustained, faithful. Isn't, Isn't this what we're really longing for? Even those of us who don't realize this is what we're longing for, this is what we're longing for. Verse 23 of Colossians 3 says, and, who, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now another possible motive is the good of others, right? So again, we're talking about our motives in life. Another possible motive is the good of others. Perhaps this was also a motive of Elisha, although it appears to be secondary to the glory of God. But helping others is often an outflow of functioning within the glory of God and within the will of God. So think of all the ministries, the the hospitals, the charitable organizations founded and funded as a result of someone motivated by bringing glory to God. The result, it seems, of bringing glory to God is the good of others. You know, Jesus was asked, powerful question, which commandment is most important in Matthew chapter 22? Which commandment is the most important? And without hesitating, verse 37, Jesus says, Love God with all of your heart, Love God with all of your soul. Love God with all of your mind. Love God with all of your strength. He says, this is the first and great commandment. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bringing glory to God flows into doing good for others. Giving glory to God is the fountainhead of all that is truly good. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, nor shadow of turning. Live for the glory of God, and you will do good for others. We're looking at possible motives. Here's another with what you do with your life, to earn money, to support yourself, and have money to give and to enjoy. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13 says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice 
and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. Earning money is a legitimate motivation for our work. Okay? Let me say that again. Earning money is a legitimate motivation for our work. I don't think it's the best first cause, however. We earn money so that we can support ourselves without being in need. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says, And to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's a good thing. We also work in order to have something to give. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have something to give to those in need. Don't just work to get. Work so that you can give. That's a better motive. With some of what we earn, it's right and good to enjoy it and to do fun and interesting things. We serve the God, according to 1 Timothy 6.17, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I'm glad we serve a God like that. Fun, leisure, recreation, vacation, pleasure, those are all part of life. The problem is not those things, but the love of those things. Those things are not meant to be motivators or drivers. Another motivator, we're talking about what motivates our lives, is the gospel. For the believer, there's nothing that matters more than the gospel. The Bible says in Colossians 3.1, If you then are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. We, are, we call it the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Everything that we do, church, hear me, everything that we do should revolve around the gospel. Our occupation, our recreation, our leisure should all be opportunities for us to reflect Jesus. Everything that we do should be done in a winsome fashion. By living our vocations for the glory of God and for the good of others, doing them well, our vocations, and in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord, we create a testimony that models the gospel. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Everything we do should be motivated by the gospel. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to bring glory to God. I like the puzzle thing. Because the reality is those of you in the church who are out there in the world, secular jobs, uh, different neighborhoods, uh, you're the ones on the front line. Pastors are more coaches and equippers. 
But you are the ones who can really make a difference. It's up to you to model the gospel in front of the people that you work alongside and the people that you live by, the people that you interact with in the marketplace. You are the true ambassadors for the gospel. But it only works if you have a good testimony. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, was my little moment during preparation this week. There's always a little moment. It says, exhort servants. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Exhort servants. I think today that speaks of employees, right? Exhort employees to be obedient unto their bosses and to please them well in all things not answering again you know you know what that means not talking back another great king james word coming not purloining not stealing not pilfering but showing all good fidelity or loyalty that they may Adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Now, it's the word adorn in that passage that caught my eye. Think of this. Your testimony adorns the gospel. It's not the gospel. Your your testimony isn't the gospel. It adorns the gospel. It's it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But your life augments, your life decorates, your life enhances the gospel. No matter where we are, whether it's work or, or school or the mall or the grocery store or at home or in the neighborhood, you may be the first gospel someone ever hears. You may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Adorn the gospel. Adorn the gospel with the life you lead. Adorn the gospel with the words you say. Adorn the gospel with the way you treat others. Adorn the gospel with the language you use. Adorn the gospel with your outlook on life. Adorn the gospel with the way you handle adversity. Adorn the gospel with the way you take offense and suffer indignity and endure affliction. Adorn the gospel. Your life puts a face to the gospel. You are the gospel message with skin on it. And that's exactly what Elisha did. Now Gehazi, on the other hand, seemed to be driven by some unhealthy motivators. Greed, number one, is an intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth or power. It's a motivation that rises from within yourself as opposed to a calling that comes from without. But greed rises from within and it's self-serving. It's been said, it's not a Bible verse, but it's been said a, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. Another unhealthy motivator is pride. Some people are driven by recognition and status. They're driven by self-acknowledgement or self-importance and acknowledgement. 
Others, number three, are driven by their competitive natures, competition. Some of it is a desire to be better than other people. Other times it's a different kind of competition, a little more difficult to discern. It can be an insecurity that has to prove itself over and over and over again. Another motivator is number four, to please someone else. Our formative years may have left a void and created this need to please others. Some are are driven by this need to please. And it can be an insatiable, all-consuming need. We need to ask ourselves, who is it that we're trying to please? Ephesians 6, 7 says, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Another unhealthy motive is to establish worth. Some are so insecure, they work incessantly to establish their own value. It's a a never-ending, ceaseless, continual need that constantly demands action on our part. We, We can never rest. We always have to do. Where do these unhealthy drivers come from? Well, maybe we grew up in an environment where affection and affirmation were lacking. For whatever reason, we're respect-starved, trying to gain the respect of, of someone from the past. Perhaps we had an early experience of deprivation or shame. Or maybe our drivenness is a simple need for love. Some were raised in an atmosphere where where drivenness is simply a way of life. Whatever it is, we need to identify our drivers. What is it, congregation? What is it that motivates you? Galatians 1.10 says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, then I should not be the servant of Jesus Christ. You see, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve what drives you and God at the same time. Gehazi tried. He tried to serve Elisha, and he tried to serve his raging greed. He wound up a leper. When we try to serve two masters, we compromise the gospel. We water down our testimony and miss out on what it is God has placed within us as a healthy driver. It's like trying to run your car on bad fuel. But there is hope for us today. It starts by ruthlessly appraising your motives. Ruthlessly appraise your motives. You know, and this is difficult. Because some things may not be bad, but they may be important to us for the wrong reason. So I want to start the new ministry. I want to build the mission. Why is that important to me? Is it what God called me to? Or am I searching for the approval of men? What's my driver? What's my motivator? Ruthlessly appraise your motives. Number two, 
Realize you may be operating according to drives and not calls. So the drive comes from within. The call comes from God. Elisha was called. Gehazi was driven. Number three. Again, the hope for us today in the midst of all this. Forgive those in your past who failed to affirm you or failed to show you affection. And forgive those who have modeled an unhealthy drivenness to you. Number four, seek the face of God and begin to live for Him. Seek the face of God and begin to live for Him. He knows what you were created to be. He knows what you were created to do. He knows what you can handle. He's the one you need to serve. Number five, receive the unconditional love of God. You don't... Church, I wish I could impart this to you with the passion that I feel it. Because I think we need this. You don't have to score points with God. Does your kid have to score points with you? Are you looking for your kid to, to do something that scores points? You know, if you truly love someone, they don't have to go around trying to score points with you. You don't have to outperform anyone to win God's approval. He created you in His image. Think about this. You are the work of His hands. And you're the labor of His heart. Ask yourself, who am I competing with? Who is it I'm, I'm trying to please? And then just do what Elisha did. Operate within your calling for the glory of God. Gehazi, he ended up with leprosy. And I want you to think about this as I close. A bad motive spoils even the good that you do. An unrighteous motive clings to you like leprosy and makes even the good things that you do unclean. And I think the end result of all this is if we really ruthlessly appraised our motives and if we could align ourselves with the will of God for our lives, we would find our load lightened because His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The yoke that we've put on ourselves, the, the plates that we keep spinning, the, the balls that we keep in the air, working outside of His will, outside of our gifting, outside of our calling, that's all much more difficult. Trying to please all of you is much more difficult than it is to try to please God. He wants, he longs to set you free from all of these drivers, all of these outside pressures. Am I working to please men? 
Am I working to please God? I want my number one motive to be the glory of God. And, and everything that happens after that will be good. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added unto you. If you're, if you're seeking the glory of God, you'll be a good employee. If you're seeking the glory of God, you'll be a good husband, a good wife. You'll be a good parent. You'll be a good friend, a good neighbor. But it all starts by being motivated by the glory of God. One other thought I want to leave you with came from the sermon. Your testimony adorns the gospel. Everything you do, you don't punch in and punch out of being a Christian. So when you're in the neighborhood, when you're at work, when you're in the cubicle, you're on the assembly line, you're working in the, 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 the railroad yard, you're in the factory, you're on the job, you're in the office, you're still a Christian. And everything that you do should reflect the gospel. Adorn the gospel with every word that you say. The way you treat other people. I always think of the the person in the drive-thru window at McDonald's. Think of the abuse that guy takes. How do you treat the person in the drive-thru window that will never see you again, really can't offer you anything? How do you treat that person? It's all part of your testimony. It's all part of how you adorn the gospel. I'm wondering if there's someone here today that has never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The year was 1983 when I first came to this church. See, if you're new here, what you don't realize is this is my hometown. They didn't ship me in from Toledo. I grew up here in Superior. Back in 1983, Marlene invited me to church and I reluctantly came. I heard the word of God. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Over the course of time, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Best decision I ever made. I have never regretted it once. It wasn't until many years later that I became the pastor. And so I'm wondering if there's one here today. Maybe you're here like I was here back in 1983. You came to please someone else. You know what? God can use that. My hope and my prayer for everyone here is that you would know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You want to give me the best pastor appreciation gift that you can give? Then know Jesus. And leave me with the assurance that someday when I get to heaven, I'll see you there. That's the best gift that you can give me. And how do you do that? You do that by acknowledging that you're a sinner. It starts right here. God, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I've missed the mark. I look at the Ten Commandments, which is just a sampling of the law. I'm over ten. And you say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Bible says if you've been angry without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. I'm 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. I've fallen short. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we confess that, Lord, I'm a sinner. And then we recognize that our only hope of righteousness is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came 2,000 years ago 
led a perfect life, sinless life, suffered and died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. The Bible says the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Every animal that was slain and their blood spilled was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Maybe you'd say, well, Tom, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You're right, I don't. But here's what I do know. I know that one drop of Jesus' blood is enough to cleanse you of all your sins. That's the good news of the gospel. So we confess our sin. We leave it with him. The foot of the cross. We turn our lives in a different direction. We begin to live for him, just like we were talking about, for the glory of God. Our motives change. The Bible says as we delight ourselves in him, he gives us the desires of our heart. That means he gives us new desires. That day that I received Jesus as my Savior, everything changed. I was a, a new person from the inside out. And all the things that I wanted before had passed away. And behold, all things were made new. Every once in a while, I run into somebody from high school that I haven't seen. And they say, hey, what are you doing now? And I say, you probably won't believe this. I'm the pastor of Central Assembly. Only God could do that. And God can change your heart. He can change your motives if you'll give it all to him. Lord, I, I pray for the folks that make up Central Assembly, the folks that are here today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their, their hearts. I pray in this quiet moment that they would ponder what it is that motivates them. Who are we trying to please? Who are we competing with? What is it that we're shooting for? And the more we think about that, the more we realize how important it is to live for God, to live for something beyond the moment, something beyond these 70, 80, 90 years, but to begin to live for something that's eternal. Lord, I'm thankful that you came into this world. You became one of us. It was the only way our sins could be forgiven. It was the only way the sin issue could be dealt with. Was if someone came that was qualified to pay the penalty. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And so Lord, as individuals today, we receive that from you. We accept the atoning sacrifice of the cross. We thank you for washing us as white as snow. And we choose this morning to live for you to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing one last song together if you want to stand with us.